truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, the increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God, I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The word of the Lord. Well, please join with me in prayer. Father, we, um, we acknowledge in your presence right now uh, that we, uh, on our own, cannot understand things. Um, not, not in their fullest sense. We, we depend on you. We depend on you to show us what we most need to see on your spirits to help us to hear what we most need to hear. And so um, we ask that you help us to come even now with, with open and humble hearts and that you would uh, show us what you want us to see, that we might, we might know you more and love you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the summer, our series we've entitled Behold Your God, and um, our intent has been relatively simple, and that is we want to spend some time just looking and seeing who God is. But what happens when it is really hard to see God? What happens when it is really hard to believe that God exists or that God is good? 
We have uh, here a psalm, uh, if we had included like the title that's oftentimes put before it, we would see that it's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was the the worship leader of the day, kind of the Nicoans of Israel at the moment. So he was a pretty important person. Um, and so that makes the psalm already worth listening to. But there's something even more about the psalm that I find particularly compelling, and that is there is an honesty, perhaps you noticed. Because here, this person, this important figure is acknowledging that he almost lost his faith. So the very beginning is the thesis to which we will return uh, but, but verse 2 really speaks of the, the context in which, which gave rise to this psalm, where he says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Um, our family a number of years ago uh, had a vacation in Colorado, and we went hiking up a mountain, which was great, except for the fact that there were some moments where there was on the path on the one edge, just this steep drop-off. And, you know, it was a few years ago, so our kids were a little bit younger. And so there were like two or three moments where our kids were still far enough away that it wasn't dangerous, but both Jennifer and I kind of had visions of what might happen if they just like kind of tumbled off and like plummeted to their doom. So it was, you know, a little stressful at times. Well, what Asaph is saying is that almost happened to him, that, that he was on a path, he was right on the edge, and, and this happened, and all it would have taken is the wind to blow him just a little more, and he would fall into his doom. He was, he was that close to losing his faith. Do you, do you know at all what it's like to have a crisis of faith? Maybe you wouldn't even call it that. Maybe we would just call it being kind of overwhelmed by doubts. Do you know what it's like to, to find suddenly the things that you used to feel stable completely uncertain? Do you know what it's like to actually find yourself in a time where you're not sure if you were going to come through this on the other side as someone who actually believes these things anymore? Sometimes crisis of faith can happen because of some, some really terrible events. Maybe we find ourselves going through a divorce or, or someone close to us suddenly is taken from us and we don't understand and it just sends us spiraling. Other times it can happen more subtly. We're just kind of, over time, certain doubts just kind of seep underneath our skin until one morning we wake up and we find ourselves asking, do I really believe this anymore? It seems like when Asaph is talking about his own story, it is, it is more the latter. He, he doesn't describe any one particular event. Instead, he talks about this kind of insidious, ongoing thing that just became more and more troubling to him that he associates with envy. So he says, you know, my feet, my steps nearly slipped, verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And what we see in the following verses is this extended description of seeing people who do not seem to have any love for God, but seem to enjoy a tremendous amount of prosperity. I mean, it just begins the next verse. They're, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, and it just goes on and on. And you get the sense that in the moment that he was experiencing this envy, there's a kind of obsession I mean, he basically says, their lives are awesome, everything is great, they never have any pain. I mean, there's no one whose life is exactly like this, but, but that's how he sees it, where he concludes, 
Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. And it's troubling to him because it doesn't make sense when he looks at his life. There's this, I mean, do you remember, uh, you know, a number of years ago, there was the old Spice commercial, look at your man, now look at me. Now look at your man again, now back at me. Sadly, your man is not me. You remember that like commercial? Well, he's kind of doing that where he's looking at their life and he's looking at his own. And he's looking at their life again. It's like, why, why is my life not like theirs? I mean, do you notice the contrast? On one hand, these wicked, the ones who say in verse 11, how can God know? The ones who mock God, they are always at ease. Meanwhile, look at how he feels about his life. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Shouldn't it work differently? If, if the God of the universe loves you. Shouldn't that make a difference and make your life at least a little bit easier? I mean, it would be nice, I think, or maybe it would be reassuring if people we know who just completely disregarded God, completely disregarded Him, where it ends up being, you know, just a life where they kind of spiral into debauchery and ruin until it leads to just something terrible and it becomes like a, a moral story for us all and reassuring. And, and, you know, sometimes we see that. There, there are definitely are consequences to actions that are, are mistaken, but sometimes we don't, right? Sometimes we see people for whom it seems anything related to God is completely irrelevant. They have no no concern about knowing Him, and yet their lives seem effortless, happy, joyful. And we look at our lives, and sometimes we find that following God actually makes things harder, and we go, shouldn't it be different? Do you ever find yourself with that question? Do you ever find yourself troubled by that? Well, Asaph, the worship leader, certainly did. And we see, we see where he... The conclusion he almost comes to, verse 13, in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He is so close to falling off. He says, if I had said I will speak this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He is so close to giving up. And yet we know he doesn't, right? Because very first verse already tells us where this psalm is going. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel. It is not vain. I come to see that now. It is not vain. But in this moment where he is doubting, he almost concludes that. And I think this psalm actually is meant to help us to understand how he moves through that to the other side. But before we actually get to the thing that changes for him, we actually first see him kind of leading us almost to a sense of a dead end that he experienced as he is wrestling with this internal turmoil. There's an interesting thing that happens with, with the way the pronouns take place in these verses. Maybe you notice when you're hearing it. So beginning in verse 4, what do you keep on hearing? It's they, they, they. He's constantly just looking at them over there, them, them, them. And then at a certain point, he just kind of pulls back. And then what do you see beginning at verse 13? I, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean. For all day long, I have been stricken. If I had said, he's kind of moved from looking at them to just kind of being in his own head. 
And, and what you see here is that just him trying to understand it on his own, kind of pulling back, doesn't help him. This is not the kind of thing that you can think your way out of. Notice what he says in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In fact, as he looks back on this time where he kind of just pulled back and tried to just kind of understand things objectively and try to make sense of it, he looks back and is actually really almost condemning of the way that he saw himself. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish. This is verse 21 and 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. What he's saying is, when I was stuck in this and I kind of pulled within myself and I was trying to just like figure it out on my own, I became less than human. What is he saying here? So here's what I think is going on. I think he is recognizing that in that moment that he was trying to pull back and just understand it all on his own and think his way through, he was not understanding rightly who he is or how thinking even works. I want to I put something absurd as an illustration. Let's see if it, if it helps. Imagine um, I am deciding for some strange reason to, to read a book on the pros and cons of electrical lights. I mean, there actually are stuff like out there where they're talking about on one hand, you know, you get productivity, but it throws off our sleep cycles. Imagine it's nighttime, it's dark outside, and I'm just nerdily just reading this book, trying to decide what I think about the value of this. And, and suddenly I look around and it occurs to me, I'm surrounded by electrical lights. I am being biased by this light as I'm trying to evaluate about light. So the only solution that occurs to me is I have to shut everything out and then try to read the book to see what I think which of course doesn't work. Because if you're trying to read something in the dark, you don't see. Because our, our eyes are designed in such a way that we can only come to understand what is true. We can only come to see things in the light. Again, I realize, absurd description. But, but what I'm trying to say is that is what is taking place here. We, our souls are designed where we are only able to see things when we are in the light. And, and, and God is not just some sort of object out there. God is truth. God is righteousness. The only way we can be truly who we are is as we are connected to God and as He opens our eyes and helps us to see. And when we pull ourselves away from Him, we become less and less what we were meant to be. We become almost like animals. He's saying, as I tried to pull away, I lost an aspect of my humanity and my ability to see things. But he said there's something even more to it than that. Because what he's trying to understand here is not just a fact. This is not just some sort of fact about God. This is not some sort of geometrical analysis where he just needs to do a proof. He, he is trying to process really that's something that's more about a relationship. Have you ever had it where um, someone has said something with you or they did something that, that made you feel really negative? There was something about it that just kind of felt off. And after that interaction, after that conversation, on your own, your brain is just kind of spinning around, replaying that conversation, replaying, and you find yourself more and more and more bothered by it. And it, it kind of like you just start spiraling inside of you. And, and the strange thing is, until you come back to that person and start talking to them, you will have this weird warped picture. But then sometimes, at least, 
when you just talk to that person again and you see who they are and you recognize their humanity and you see that they care about you and you care about them, suddenly everything feels different again. And that's also what's happening with the psalmist. As the psalmist is pulling back and saying, I'm trying to understand this on my own, he is pulling back from the one person that he needs to help him to see what's going on. And so what happens is once he comes back into the presence of God, he begins to see again. Do you notice that's, that's what we see in verse 7? After he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I saw. The sanctuary in that time literally was a place either in the tabernacle or the temple where God says His presence will be more explicitly dwelling. I'm not sure he's actually literally saying that he, he's, he walked into the sanctuary. I think the idea here is, in this moment, I moved towards God. Maybe he moved towards God in prayer, or maybe he moved towards the people of God as they were worshiping together, but there was something about this moment by moving towards God where suddenly all of these things that had been spinning around in his head started kind of calming down and he could see. I remember a mentor of mine when I was in college said, that he, for the longest time, found prayer to be frustrating to him. And he said what happened was when he was feeling really low, really anxious, he knew that what he should be doing was praying about those things, and so he would. But in hindsight, he realizes the whole time all he would do was just focus on the things he was praying about. He would focus on how miserable he was and how hard things… Essentially, he was almost praying to his problems. I said, of course, as long as I was doing that, I wasn't feeling any better. But he said, what I started realizing is I need in prayer to actually take those problems and pray towards God and remember who He is and bring those problems to Him. And that's, I think, what we see happening here. Rather than pulling away and trying to understand on his own, Asaph finally at some moment turns towards God and then he begins to see. And there's a, a, a change in pronoun. Do you, do you notice what happens? So, as I said before, it starts with they, 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 and then I, 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 I. But after he walks into the sanctuary, what do we see? Truly, you set them in slippery places. In fact, there's one phrase that's repeated. It's, it's clearer in the Hebrew than you see in the English, but there's this idea of, of with you. So, verse 22, literally it says, I was like a beast with you. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Verse 25, literally, is there's nothing on earth I desire with you. And, and 28 similarly says, for me, it is good to be near God. Do you see the difference? He is, he is with God. And as he's in God's presence and he realizes God is near, everything that looked so warped and twisted before suddenly looks different. So now, the same people he felt so jealous about, look at how he sees them now. Verse 18 and 19, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, one of my more colorful professors said, today's poster child is tomorrow's worm food. 
which stuck with me when I kind of started to imagine that. But he's right, right? And, you know, you have people of, you know, who have this picture of virility and strength who are in the movies. It's not long before their life is completely over. Verse 20 says, like a dream when one awakes, they are. Think of that. Think of how a dream, in, like in our dreams, in the moments, everything seems so real. But then when we wake up, we can barely remember what was going on, and it doesn't take long before we've completely forgotten about it. He says, that's, that's the way they are. It seems so real, so important, and for a moment, their life seems so significant, and then it's, a, it's nothing. He doesn't just see them more clearly. He sees his own situation more clearly. One of my favorite parts of this passage. So, verse 22, we already saw, he, he looks back judgmentally on himself. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Do you see what he's seeing? E even in that moment where I thought I was so far away from you, even in that moment where I just completely doubted you, I look back now and realize you were holding me the whole time. You were continually with me. And let me say even to us right now, if you right now are in this moment where you are finding, finding stuff really hard to believe, I want you to know that whether or not you feel it, and probably you don't, your God is no further from you than he ever was. He is with you. He is holding you. He has already shown you how deeply he loves you by giving Jesus. Your God is with you. And in fact, it's not just his situation that he sees more clearly. He sees God more clearly. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here ultimately is the answer to his confusion. As, as, as delighted as those he's looking at might be, and they probably aren't nearly as happy as he thinks, he, he sees now they are without one thing, and that is God. And that's everything. When he's saying there's nothing on earth or heaven I desire besides you, he's not saying that he's going to be without grief or without sadness or that there's no delight in anything he has. He, what he's saying is ultimately, at the end, if I have you, if you are with me, I know I will have everything I need. You are all I want. And as he sees that, he is able to conclude both at the end and at the beginning. What does he say at the end? But for me, it is good to be near God. Or at the very beginning, truly God is good. What, what, what he is telling us in this psalm is that the way when we are seeing, feeling like we're in the dark or in the fog or in confusion, the way to see clearly is by moving towards God. In essence, what we have in these verses is, you could say, like kind of two different spirals. And Asaph wants us to understand how both of these spirals work. You can talk about a spiral maybe of doubt or despair. 
much of this psalm is talking about how Asaph started feeling confused. And what does he do when he's feeling confused about God, who's supposed to be good? He, he finds himself pulling back. And as he's pulling back, God seems even further from him, even harder to believe, so he pulls back even more. And it goes further and further back, and it could have gone all the way, but something happens where he actually starts moving towards God. He enters into the sanctuary, and as he enters into the sanctuary, he begins to see God and his goodness, and that draws him closer. He sees God is always with me. He holds me by my right hand. It draws him closer, and he's able to move back to a place of faith and joy. And what Asaph intends for us to understand is that when we are like he was, when we are in that place where we feel like we could just fall off the edge in a moment, we need to do the very thing that seems most counterintuitive. We need, when God seems so confusing and far off, even though it doesn't feel like we should, we need to move towards Him. Because that's the pathway of the spiral faith. See, as I've already alluded to, our inclination oftentimes is when things don't feel right to just kind of to pull back. It almost feels like we can get our head clear if we just kind of remove ourselves. You know, we don't need to keep praying right now because we're not sure we believe. We don't need to be at church. We're not sure we believe it. Let's just kind of pull back and allow ourselves to think, see things more clearly. And what we don't realize is oftentimes what we're doing is we're not allowing our doubts to move us to curiosity or our doubts to move us to questing for truth or really seeking things. We're letting our doubts become where we just stay forever, kind of the dead end where we are giving up. And Asa says, you can do that if you want, but you will never actually know what is true. The only way, if you are finding yourself in this time of confusion and misery and uncertainty, is even though you don't feel it, move towards God. Not in a way where you're being dishonest. He's inviting you to pray, but not in a way where you pray kind of polite, appropriate prayers. God, we love you. We praise you. We're so excited about you, even if we don't feel it. No, we, we pray our doubts, right? We say, God, I don't understand what's going on. Why is this happening to me? I don't understand how you can be loving, Lord. Please help me to understand. He is inviting us to move back towards to being with the people of God. Again, not in a fake way where we're just kind of pretending everything's fine while our heart feels like this empty hole, but instead to actually come honestly to talk to friends and say, you know what, I've got my doubts. I really don't get it right now. And to see what God does. He's inviting us to turn towards God in this kind of vulnerability and to wait. And he's saying that not just kind of um, abstractly, not just because that's the thing he's supposed to say. He is saying that because it's what he has experienced himself. He's saying, here's what I can tell you. Here's what I know. I have been where you are, and I'm on the other side, and what I can tell you is that God was always with me, and God is good.